0: Welcome to KISS FAQ Song Story Series. In this series, we'll focus on the histories of some of KISS's best and least known songs. In this episode, Love's a Deadly Weapon released on the Asylum album in 1985. The story of this deep cut begins following Kiss's return from Australia and New Zealand in December 1980. With the Unmasked tour completed, it was time for the band to take a break before getting to work on the next album, which was known internally as Kiss 17. During the break, Eric Carr took his then-girlfriend into a studio to record some of her own demos before getting to work with Ace Frelli on some ideas prior to the whole band reconvening. By January, various regional phonogram offices were starting to ask management when they could expect delivery of a new Kiss album, adding pressure with a new contract having been signed on April the 1st of the previous year. There was one problem, according to Bill O'Coyne in 13 Classic Kiss Stories. After Unmasked, the guys decided to take some time off. Uh, there was a lot of emotions between Peter leaving and and go, doing the next record or not and when and so forth. We knew that the record company needed another record, but no one was in the mood to either write one and or record one. As the pressure came down on us to come up with a new album, and I realized the guys weren't writing, or did they feel like uh, recording a new album? The band pushed on, and initial recording sessions were scheduled to commence at Ace's home studio in Wilton, Connecticut on February the 7th. Gene asserted in Behind the Mask that the location was utilized because Ace refused to work in New York City, and it's hardly surprising on one hand. For Ace it was a convenient location, out of the public eye, and it had recently been designed, built, and equipped by renowned architect and acoustician John Storick. Engineer Rob Freeman, who had worked with him on his 1978 solo album, would be behind the console. Ace's studio was state-of-the-art at the time. It featured an MCI-600 series automated console with an MCI-JH-16 2-inch 24-track tape machine, plus a couple of MCI-100A 2-track tape machines for mixdowns. And at home, Ace had easy access to his arsenal of guitars, should a specific model be required for a particular sound or feel. And he basically only had to walk from his living room, down a flight of stairs, and through a hallway to reach the studio. However, there was a more important reason for recording at Aces. The band weren't yet recording an album, and were simply using the facility to conduct pre-production. Freeman recalled in an interview with Tim McFate, We weren't in the process of compiling an album, more just throwing tracks together to see what stuck. One advantage of working in a private recording facility like Ace in the Hole is that you can spend inordinate amounts of time writing and tinkering without worrying about the clock ticking away expensive studio hours and spend time we did. For the other three members of the band and their entourage, the commute to Wilton took 90 minutes each way, and the band were working there five days a week. In the dead of winter, it wasn't always fun zooming up the Merritt Parkway in their Porsches, Freeman recalled. The sessions continued on and off throughout January and February and ran like marathons at all hours of the day and night. Since there was really nowhere else to go, once you were there, we were all happily trapped together in the studio. At the time, the band had promised fans a return to the heavier edge sound they were better known for, though they were under pressure to build on the success of Unmasked in some markets and rebuild their popularity at home and in Japan in particular. The progenitor of Love's a Deadly Weapon, simply known as Deadly Weapons, came across as being more of an Unmasked transition piece, In some ways, it would have been right at home on that album, with similar Vinnie Poncia production values. Subject-wise, it seems very much a partner of Nowhere to Run, which dated from the same period. Marks officially notified Phonogram of the commencement of recordings on February the 19th, triggering payment of the band's $250,000 advance for the elder album cycle. The bed track for Deadly Weapons was essentially recorded live in the studio. Freeman recalled the sessions in general. For the recording of the basic tracks, the four members were situated fairly close to each other in the studio, maybe 10 feet apart. The drum kit was set out in the open room, not in the booth areas. I placed close mics on the individual drums and cymbals and an array of room mics about 10 to 15 feet away from the kit to capture its sound in the room ambiance. Gobos were put around the guitar and bass amps in an attempt to keep their sound from bleeding too much into the drum and the room mics. Gene's bass was recorded through a direct box in addition to having the microphone in front of his amp. I also set up a few vocal mics that were used for communications, cueing, and reference vocals. The band members all wore headphones with a mix of instruments and vocals that I set in the control room. In terms of development, only Deadly Weapons had reached the stage where it had the lead and guitar backing vocal overdubs completed. With some basic tracks captured, the band switched to Penny Lane Studios in New York City, not far from Madison Square Garden. Again Rob Freeman recalls, The decision to take the project to Penny Lane Studios might have been made in order to give Gene, Paul, Eric all whom lived in the New York City area, a break from the lengthy commutes to ACES Studio in Connecticut. Penny Lane had a wonderful Trident recording console and well-designed recording and control rooms. I'd recorded several projects there prior to bringing in KISS and was always very pleased with the experience and, more importantly, the results. Because it was primarily a radio jingle production house operated by its parent company, Radio Band of America, Penny Lane Studios could be booked at very reasonable rates, but only after hours, and that meant overnight through dawn sessions. The sessions at Penny Lane served primarily for the recording of lead vocals, though some had also been done at Aces, background vocals, and other overdubs prior to mixing. However, only this song would receive a guitar solo for some unknown reason, making it the most completed of those three pre-Elder songs. On February the 26th, Bill O'Coyne and the band met with one Bob Ezrin to discuss a possible new collaboration, and he was confirmed days later putting the already completed sessions on ice. Freeman, who had been engineering and co-producing, was paid off for his work, which was estimated by Aucoin to have been more than 200 hours in the studio. And there ended his involvement. Freeman recalled, I believe it was late February that Mr. Ezrin first appeared during one of the sessions at Ace's studio. I don't recall him participating in that session. Very shortly thereafter, Mr. Ezrin, the band, and the multitrack tapes I'd been working on all upped and headed north to Canada. The songs recorded at Penny Lane, including Nowhere to Run and Feel Like Heaven, not the pornographic four-track demo out of Gene's Closet, were discarded, simply pushed aside while other pre-production jams and ideas would be elderfied. Deadly Weapons languished, seemingly forgotten when Nowhere to Run was revived for Kiss Killers in 1982. In his 2014 autobiography, Face the Music, Paul described his feelings about the material that they'd been working on. The problem was that the stuff we were writing was no better than the songs on Unmasked. In fact, it was probably worse. We'd lost the plot. My songs were nothing to write home about. Jeans were no better. That, essentially, was the party line, which has remained consistent since 1982, with Eric Carr telling the Montreal Gazette at the time, We first went into the studio last January and recorded tracks that were powerful but sounded too much like the same old KISS. He'd later also refer to those sessions as preliminaries during the mid-1980s in interviews with various fanzines. Gene concurred in the Toronto Star in November 1981. He said, In fact, we had five tracks for another album already recorded, and it was very adept, very hard stuff. It was as good as if not better than anything we've done or is out now, but we weren't excited by it. Business manager Chris Lend told Tim McFate the consensus that they got from the people in Australia at Polygram at the time was that they should come back in 1981 and do another really hard rock album, because that was the essence of what KISS was, and they felt that that was something that would serve KISS well. You know, the last advice offered that you hear from people who are in a position to have their advice listened to is often the advice that you go with. So that was their inclination to go back into the studio and record a typical hard rock, heavy metal KISS album. Which I think they tried to do, but it never coalesced. And the thinking was that they didn't want to come out with another ordinary KISS hard rock album. Maybe it would have been good and accepted by the fans, but they didn't think it was really big enough. So having their egos boosted by the tremendous success of the Australia tour, and with the influence of Bill O'Coin, they decided to go off in a different direction. Fast forward to the mid-1980s, where Gene had branched out into other areas such as acting and artist production. While this sometimes distracted from his attention to Kiss and saw a marked decline in the quality of his contributions to the band, it did lead to some interesting situations regarding musical material. One artist he produced was Wendy O. Williams. She had been part of the Plasmatics who had toured with Kiss during the Creatures era. In 1984, work began on the follow-up to Wendy's WOW album, later released as Commander of Chaos. Gene was again considered for the role of producer. While he had to pass due to his schedule and other projects that he was working on, he did do some pre-production work with the band. It is likely there, or perhaps even earlier during the WOW sessions, that he heard a demo of a song called Party, which was written by Wendy's manager Rod Swenson and Wes Beach. Gene recalled him Behind the Mask, When we started working on another studio record, I remembered parts of Love's a Deadly Weapon. My songwriting style is if I like something, I'll put it together Frankenstein style, a piece from here and a piece from there and create something new. I remember reading that the Beatles did it that way, with Lennon and McCartney sticking pieces of their own songs and brand new songs would be born. That's what I did with Love's a Deadly Weapon. That's an honest appraisal of the process that saw this song created, but it certainly wasn't Beatles' quality by any stretch of the imagination. While the co-writing credits for the 1985 KISS recording lists Gene and Paul in addition to West Beach and Rod Swenson, Gene's comments suggest that Deadly Weapons itself was simply Paul's work, and his credit originated from piecing the latter version together and writing the lyrics. Gene essentially liked the riff in Party and borrowed it, adding it to Paul's chorus he'd only retain the first two lines lyrically of Paul's chorus and rewrite the rest of the song. Fused with the powerful drumming of Eric Carr, which by 1985 was a completely different level from the style he was performing in 1980, and the flying guitars from Bruce Kulick, for some, the resulting transformed song would be one of Gene's stronger efforts from the air. Unfortunately, Loves a Deadly Weapon was never performed live, but the song remains an interesting part of the group's catalogue providing one of the most high-profile cases of where elder-related material was later recycled, at least until Car Jam was included on Revenge in 1992.